Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome, my name is Anne Wilson, and I'm delighted to host the Emerge Australia Imagine podcast series in which we speak to people impacted and associated with MECFS and long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present, emerging and those listening today. At a time where we have so much unrest in the world, reflecting on John Lennon's iconic song, Imagine, is very appropriate. Let's imagine a world where there are no wars. There is no discrimination or stigma or racism, a world where the voices of those suffering invisibly in silence are heard, seen and addressed, a world where there is a cure for MECFS or at the very least a biomarker or diagnostic test, let alone updated clinical guidelines. Imagine all the people So today I'm pleased to welcome Jenny Meager and her husband Pete to our podcast. Jenny lives with MECFS. Before her illness became more severe, Jenny worked as a speech pathologist in education settings. She has two adult children, one of whom also lives with MECFS. Jenny's involvement in MECFS advocacy began with the Millions Missing campaigns. She has a particular interest in political lobbying and we're very grateful that she also works with Emerge Australia in a voluntary capacity when she is able. Jenny's husband, Pete, cares for both Jenny and their adult daughter and they're both great supporters of Emerge Australia. Jenny and Pete, welcome. Thank you, Anne. Thanks, Anne. So to get us started today, Jenny, could you please take us to the beginning of your MECFS journey and tell us a bit about you, why you care about people with MECFS? Okay, well, uh, I'm afraid it's it's a long journey, but uh, I'll try and give you the short version. Uh, 30 years ago, next month, I got sick. Uh, as you said, prior to that, I was working, um, I was very active socially, professionally, physically, loved the outdoors. We travelled a lot. Uh, you know, we had normal, wonderful, busy lives. And then we had a, a trip to the UK and two days after arriving in London, I got a terrible viral illness. And basically, I have never properly recovered from that. I should add that 
the the course of the illness has been quite variable in that time. So um, it's been a long time, it's a long duration, but um, yeah, it hasn't been severe for the whole time. Uh, So it was a sudden onset and at the time people just said, you just need to rest. I had absolutely no idea what was going on. I um, I got I waited till the school holidays, had a good rest, didn't get better, went back to full time work, struggled like so many of us did. I just cut out everything in my life except work, uh, and rationalised that as much as I could. And then. Uh, something happened that was quite unusual for that time was that I got diagnosed quite early, within the first year or two. And this is purely because I was working alongside a visiting teacher uh, for health-impaired students and she said to me, I think you've got this thing called chronic fatigue syndrome, as it was called then. And she gave me a cassette tape from... Uh, Dr. Kathy Rowe at the Royal Children's Hospital, and I listened to it, and I thought, that is exactly what I've got. And so I went to a physician, got a, an official diagnosis, and he said, don't worry, you'll get better. Uh, so, uh, of course, I didn't. But I did gradually improve, and I got to 95% uh, recovery. Within within two or three years, and I thought that was it. That's over. Um, back to normal life. Uh, that was unfortunate, but it's all over. Uh, of course, that that wasn't the case. And um, from then on, it's kind of been a gradual decline, but with with step downs. Uh, so. The triggers for the declines over the years have been pregnancies, unfortunately. Uh, moving into state, I had a step-down decline. Uh, working part-time while trying to raise two primary school-aged children, unsurprisingly, caused me to get worse. And then finally in 2009, I did two graded exercise therapy programs and after that I just had to give up work completely and my life changed completely. I just uh, progressively lost everything that, well, almost everything that gave my life meaning and that was when things really got tough. Uh, I became very isolated. Uh, I fell into a, a, a physical and emotional slump and that was when we were really searching for answers, searching for treatments, getting getting desperate. Mm. Up to that, before I got sick, you know, if I had a problem, I would research, I would deal with it, you know. I, uh, I was... Someone who, you know, I had challenges before my illness, but I found a way through. But this illness 
nope, uh, it, it stopped me in my tracks. Uh, no matter how hard we tried, uh, we could not find a way to get better, which, of course, is the story for so many people. Yeah, absolutely. So my next question was going to be about some of the challenges that you've experienced in your journey, but you've already um, discussed those, particularly in the step change that um, occurred every time there was a, a major incident in your life. Mm. How did you cope with the loss of what you once had? Um you know, is that something that you think about a lot? I know you've spoken about the social isolation, but but you were a, an allied health professional, a speech pathologist, and you're also a parent of a daughter who's developed MECFS. What are your coping mechanisms or how have you learnt um, to cope with the grief and the loss? Yes, that's that's a tough one. And I should stress that what helps me and what has worked for me uh, may not work for everyone. We're all different. But when I sat down to think about it, I realised that, yes, I have learnt a lot over the years and I do draw on a lot of strategies. And I think, I think, the most important thing which uh, is made very clear these days is to stop the rest and pace, um, as if we can't say it enough. This is what helps and it's really hard to do and I'm still not very good at it and I don't rest enough and I don't pace well enough, but it really is what we need to do. and. Like so many others, I just wish that right at the beginning or even halfway through, someone had said to me, just stop, just stop working, stop trying to exercise, stop trying to push your way through, rest your body and you might have a chance of recovery. I, I just, Whether I would have listened to them, who knows? Uh, in fact, we probably had a doctor who did say that, but anyway. Um, uh, so, you know, that's that's the main advice, which I think a lot of people are, are aware of. I have had to learn over the years acceptance, which is easier said than done. So years ago, I remember my GP said to me that, I just had to learn to accept this illness and I was just aghast. I said, there's no way I'm going to accept living like this. This is just unacceptable. Um, however, she was kind of right. We do have to reach some sort of point of acceptance. It doesn't mean that we're giving up. It doesn't mean that we like it, living like this, but we just have to find I call it an in-between place um, to find some peace. And part of that, and, and Pete and I talk about this a lot, is just taking one day at a time and not looking back too much at what I used to have and certainly not trying not to look 
too far forward, but just trying to to live in the moment. And, and you're talking about a about a couple um, that you know before illness interrupted our uh, our lives. In fact, we were, we were married for eleven months before Jenny um, got sick. Um, but we we used to we used to pride ourselves on on planning three three holidays ahead. We had had in our calendar that was holidays, uh, you know, so far in advance. Um, it was one of the things that drew us together that we both loved the adventure and travel. Um, you know, Jenny travelled overland from London to Kathmandu and did all these wonderful, crazy things. Um, and now, yeah, and now travel for us, um, you know, and, and we're lucky compared to some people with MACFS. You know, we for us it might be just going down to the coast. Um, for a few days, and, and being in an Airbnb or something like that. So, um, we we definitely had to go from that life to now just thinking about one day at a time. And when we did move to that, um, we became a lot happier. We we just thought let's just live in the moment, and let's um, just just take the small pleasures that uh, life uh, throws at you. Um, and they often they're very small, but just uh, accept that. Um, you know, um, we're a tight family unit now, and we we get our um, um, get our enjoyment from from that. Emerge Australia aims to ensure that anyone impacted by MECFS or long COVID has access to support, information, and advocacy that empowers them with the knowledge and skills to make their lives more livable. We offer support to over half a million Australians who face MECFS and long COVID. What um, a blessing it must be, Jenny, um, to have an understanding husband and partner who is able to live one day at a time with you and be on that journey with you and be on the same page because I can only imagine it must be really difficult if you've, you know, you're potentially in a relationship where someone has to work and go fast and and you are feeling that almost you might be letting the side down so how reassuring has it been for you Jenny ah uh, yes that was that was one of the big things that I, I made a note to say that I I am extremely lucky um, I believe the relationship breakdown with this illness is quite high, understandably. Uh, and the number of times I've counted my blessings that I have someone with amazing patience and understanding and who has believed me and supported me right from the start. To have that belief someone believed that my symptoms were real and that I wasn't going mad, he, he has reassured me repeatedly over the years, Jenny, you are not going mad. Um, you know, it's. I feel so privileged and I recognise that many people don't have this sort of support and and it would be that much harder for them. Yeah. It must be a bit of a message you've got for families, really, um, because um, there are many people who say to us that even in their families, you know, there is disbelief that 
it may not be real. And, of course, the outside world has all the stigma and all the discrimination associated with, you know, maybe it's all in your mind, etc. So I guess the message um, to those listening um, is um, how wonderful it is to be able to have someone who is your partner and life partner who understands, who gets it, and who believes you. I think Pam is the thing that really tricks um, extended family because, you know, Jenny might rest for a week leading up to a family event. It might be Christmas or whatever. And Jenny um, likes to, you know, at least for a day, pretend that, or for a few hours, pretend that everything's normal. Yeah. Um, and then and then we leave that event and I get to see the, you know, out of everyone that was there, the the one person that wasn't having a drink has the biggest hangover, which is always the, the cruelest part of it, right? So Jenny is suffering for days and um, we know that, you know, we hear from people say, oh, Jenny seemed, seemed well. It was great to see her well, right? And and it happens with family and friends and they think, well, things can't be too bad because Jenny was bright like she's always been. Um, and uh, I kind of feel like, here I am picking up the pieces and and dealing with um, the emotional and physical aftermath. It's 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 very taxing. Yeah, and Pete, I was just going to ask you, you know, as a carer to both Jenny and your daughter, you know, what have some of the challenges been that you've had to face um, in your role as a carer? Yeah, so it, it um, it's often not well understood i think people that don't understand the impact on uh the, the patient um but for the carer it's 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 all encompassing it um it impacts uh friendships um because you really get to the point where you get you say no so many times you can't go and do things with the friends that the the you know the, the phone call stop if you know what i mean you know the message gets through so you have a really tighter, smaller group of friends when you might have been, you know, previously had a, a bigger, a bigger group of friends. Um, from a work perspective, um, it's also very challenging. Um, before Jenny was sick, um, I was a department head uh, working for a tech company. Um, very, very busy life. Um, as I've said to people before, being a manager is like being, being. being a lot of the time is being you know, someone's psychologist because you're a lot of the job is keeping everyone focused and happy and um, feeling part of a team. And I'll be carrying that burden, and then I, then I'd come home and I'd be dealing with um, you know the, the tricky life at home. So I don't more of the same. Yeah, so I had to turn my back on that, and um, you know, more than a decade ago, I had to become a sole contributor, um, which you know, it has a financial impact, um, it has an impact on job satisfaction um, and it, you kind of, you know, what I've given up is relatively small compared to people with ME but it has a, you know, it, it makes life difficult. You sort of start your start your, your marriage thinking you're going to live on dual income, you buy that house um, and then you realise you're a, on a single income and, and your earning capacity is for that one person is, is also reduced. Um, but then being that carer, we, we also have a have a son who has a disability. He doesn't have ME, but he has a, a complex disability as well. 
So I'm the one one person in the family who's kind of keep those trying to keep those those plates spinning. And just to give you an idea of how difficult it is with uh, the challenge, um, when our when our daughter um, first uh, developed ME, um, she was away from school for some time, but then she was able to go back to school. And so in a normal situation, that you know it would be the the home parent who who would take the role of of, of getting the you know the, the the child to and from school because they they're not well enough to take public transport or whatever. So I'm trying to hold down a pretty you know stressful job, and I have to explain to my manager, and this is before everyone started doing work by the remote work remotely, that I had to take my uh, my daughter to school and pick her up from school, and at the same time I'm trying to hold hold down a job. So it's um, and all the appointments and all of the appointments and everything. So I've, I've been lucky enough um, that I've you know I've I've got very understanding um, employer right now. They understand the, the challenges of it. Um, it's very much focused on on, on outcomes, but um, all of those things make uh, might make life very difficult. And then also when it comes to um, because it's a, an invisible illness, it's it's poorly understood. So. You you just you seek outside help. I mean, we're lucky enough that you know we we've got the resources and we've spent a long time and a lot of money to to get access to NDIS just recently, which is amazingly helpful. Um, and I know there's a lot of people listening um, who have ME who haven't been lucky enough to to get to that point. So we're thinking of you. Um, but before that, and even the people from NDIS is, oh, why do you get the council to help? Um, and the council's council. Uh, um, um, the the council um, has basically basically uh, say that it's all means testing. So for me to get help, I have to quit my job. But if I quit my job, I don't need help, right? That's right. Of course, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, yeah. right? So um, we went for twenty nine of those thirty years without any help whatsoever. Um, and in the last few months, we've um, we've been able to get some some help, and it's just. Just a little bit of help around the home instead of me spending the the entire weekend doing all the cleaning and yeah um yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's, it's it's very it's it's very very tricky but um you know I married my best friend and so um we 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 seem to get up each day and um enjoy each other's company and and, and continue on and we watch movies <laughs> <laughs> lots of movies. Lots of movies, and you try. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me as though you are trying to make the most out of every day and and be positive. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's. I think that's true. I, th- I think you, you know you you need to um, you know reduce your horizons uh, quite a bit. Your expectations. Uh, your expectations. It is hard when you. Talking to friends who are telling them, telling you about their latest uh, jaunt to Europe and all these sorts of things, and you just tend to shut that, shut that out of your, um, out, out of your life, and just take those small pleasures. Um, and even you know, watching movies, Jen, Jen isn't well enough to watch many, um, but it's a kind of a special thing we do at the weekend where we might watch something on a Friday, and then she'll have a headache the next day because she watched a movie. Um, but then uh, she'll, uh, yeah, yeah. So it's those little pleasures are. Um, spending time together on the couch um, is nice. Oh, that's 
Uh, I mean, it's so comforting listening to you both speak. That's um, it's Can I just add um, about being positive. Um, there's, you know, don't confuse us with people who Pollyannas who are no, 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 who are positive all the time. Of course, you wouldn't. But we have plenty of, of uh, bad patches. I have plenty of physical and emotional slumps. I have uh, very bad days, very bad weeks, like all of us, and uh, where I just lie on this bed and stare at the ceiling and think this is just unbearable. Uh, so we're certainly not happy and positive all the time, and I think that's normal and uh, expected. Uh, but my mantra is during those really dark, boring times, I have to say, is uh, this too shall pass. And I repeat it to myself and, you know, eventually I am lucky in that eventually it does pass and I do improve a bit enough to get out of bed. Uh, I know that's not the case for everyone. Um, It's such a unique disease and affects people in different ways but um, certainly the challenges associated with having good times and having people see as you said before Pete see that you appear to be okay and thinking oh things are better but not seeing the flip side of that must be um, very difficult for you to cope with and probably very confusing to anyone else who really doesn't get it, you know. Yeah, we've also um, we worked out there's some people that really understand grief. I think some people have had a pretty good life, right? Um, and when they talk to people who who are like us who are dealing with grief every day, right? We're just it's just hovering over us. Yeah. Um, they don't know how to have that conversation. So sometimes it's it's better to talk to other people who who have ME or other people who've in some reason and it's not it's not a universal rule, but often the people who've had a tough time are the, the best people to talk to because they understand kind of what you're going through, even if it might be a, a different group that they've experienced. And there will be a lot of people listening to this podcast who'll say, Yep, that's exactly what happens to me. That's exactly how I feel. They and, get it. Yeah. yeah. And one Someone, of go sorry. on. Sorry, a, a wise friend said to me, she gave me this analogy for grief and you might be familiar with it. She said grief is like a, a handbag. You carry it with you all the time. Sometimes it's a neat little bag that, and it just the grief just sits in the background and sometimes it's a huge suitcase that you have to lug around and, and it just dominates your life. Uh, and... I just think of that often uh, because that to me illustrates what what the grief is like. We can't expect not to have grief for all our losses associated with MECFS, uh, but some days it's just a handbag and other days it's a massive suitcase. And I, I guess that while we're talking about grief, um, it's important to remember that grief also comes in many forms. 
So it can come in the mad, bad, sad, glad type of packaging. So, you know, you can have days where you are very, very angry, other days where you might be extremely sad and depressed. Yeah. This is the bargaining part of grief. Why me? Why did I have to have this? And the frustration. And all of those, they don't necessarily go in sequence. Mm -hmm. uh, And not everybody, unfortunately, gets to acceptance, um, which is something you've spoken about right at the beginning, that you have sort of come to accepting where you're at right now and living one day at a time. Um, but continuing to go through that that cycle, I call it a cycle of grief. Yes, that it, it never it never finishes, and I still go through anger. Um, just ask Pete; he has witnessed <laughs> me throw things around the room. Uh, the psychologist encouraged me to throw things. By the way, uh, so so does the glazier. <laughs> I've only broken <laughs> one window. I'd just like to put that out there. But you know what? It's wonderful that you're able to talk about that because not everybody understands the cycle of grief. And when you get angry, for example, not everybody necessarily relates that to might just be part of the grief process. Jenny's um, very efficient at at uh, dealing with her grief and that it's it sort of builds up to the it's the monsoon builds up <laughs> and then um this is this, this amazing uh outburst uh, and uh and we we actually we actually sort of refer to it as a bit like the dr zeus uh cat in the hat with the red spots right so he's oh, trying wow. to get rid of the red spots and Jenny has this outburst and then there's red spots all over the place and then i've got red spots all over me so uh what happens is that i she sort of passes that grief over to me, and I wish I was as proficient as dealing with with grief as Jen, because I, my 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 way of dealing with it is is I I go through a, a you know the black dog really comes yeah. to me, and, and I it normally takes me a few days, so I, I go into a very low, um, withdrawn, you know I think I'm difficult to to live with at times um, because oh. of that, but I I do eventually come out of it. But um, you know, I don't. I don't deal with it. I think it's more common with males that you don't deal with it by talking about it. You just, just try to absorb it and hope that it goes away. And Do you ever talk goes. about it? Do you ever go and see anyone about it? Uh, yeah. So I have tried. Um, in a weird way, it's um, kind of. I've kind of said before. It's kind of like that. That joke where you you go up to the bar and you order six beers and the and the and the barman says, "Would you like a tray with that?" And you say, "Well, don't you think I've got enough to carry?" <laughs> and and so it's kind of like I don't know where you're going. Yeah, with that. it's kind of like it's a kind of a joke, but I kind of think, "What? Don't you think I've got enough to deal with without also having another appointment with a, um, a counsellor?" Um, but I also I find that. When I have tried that, they say, "Oh, you should go out and play golf, or oh. you know, go away with your friends on the weekend." And it's like, man, you just don't understand this illness. It's, um, 
you know, it's solidarity. Solidarity is a really important thing, right? And so I do. I do have to have my times where I do spend some time with friends, but I really I need to limit it because I go out and have a good time, and that's that's sticking the knife into Jenny because she, I'm doing something that she can't do. So I I have just special occasions through the year where I might catch up with friends, uh, go to the cricket for a day or two or something like that. But that's kind of like a big thing, and uh, you know the times of catching up with friends at the pub on, on the weekend or something like that it's just you know that, that's decades ago so you've got to be extremely considerate you know and pretty balanced i would think yeah it's a bit like pam in that you know do i if i go and do this what's the aftermath right and so if i go and do something but it's going to make it harder for jenny to accept that i'm going out and having fun and doing things um, you know, I've just got to, I've just got to keep that quite limited. And I, I, I've spoken to other people with ME and their carers are in a similar situation. It's just one of those things where you just have to show the solidarity and, and go on the journey. And well, like, luckily for Jenny, I actually, uh, like, like spending time with her. Um, and, um, all those things I used to do. Gorgeous thing. <laughs> That's a really lovely thing. We, we have a, we have a bit of a system. Uh, he does go swimming, mental health swimming, we call it, and swims laps. And it's hard for me because I introduced him to swimming. I used to swim every week, uh, a kilometre or two, and loved it. And But he he needs to do it for him. So we have this system where he says to me, uh, is it okay if I go for a swim? I go, yep. And then when he comes back, I don't want to hear anything about it. I don't ask about it. I don't just yeah. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to smell the chlorine, nothing. And and that way we manage. Well, you build up your own systems and processes. Yeah. So I actually went for for over a decade instead of going for a swim, I went to the gym. And Jenny was never a gym guy, so I thought if I went to the gym, that was kind of okay because swimming is one of the things that she just loves, you know. Um, and, but then, of course, with COVID, I just had to give up my gym membership because, you know, it's a petri dish for COVID and introducing COVID into a home where there's already oh. two people with ME is probably not the smartest thing to do. But. We want every Australian diagnosed with MECFS and long COVID to receive effective medical and support services without stigma or discrimination so that they and their carers can receive the appropriate care to help them manage and improve their health to the extent they are able across the lifetime of their disease while we work towards a cure. So I'm going to change tack a little bit here. Um, uh, you're both passionate advocates for change. Do you think Australia is getting any closer to improving outcomes for those with MECFS in 2023? Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Well, the answer is yes and no, right? So um, we there's there's a lot of really good things happening, but every once in a while we we see things in the media or somewhere where We've gone back um, a decade in terms of thoughts about graded exercise and things like that, and it's like, man, are we ever going to get over that? Are we ever going to be at a point where 
there's there's an acceptance by the media and health professionals that this is not a thing that can be fixed by uh, by thinking yourself better or yeah. yeah. But you know, when you think about the last ten years, particularly the last five, particularly since long COVID, you know, the the change is happening. And I think it's happening at a faster rate. Uh, those of us who've been watching for so long, you know, the research is just that the good biomedical research is coming out so much more frequently. You know, we've got so much, so much more evidence now. Uh, the guidelines are changing around the world, as we know, in the US, the UK, uh, we're creeping closer ourselves. There is there is greater awareness. There's greater discussion in the media. the The politicians. I remember the frustration of um, about thirteen years ago when I was isolated, and I just thought I'm going to write letters because that's what I know. <laughs> that's that's all I know I can do. So I wrote letters to politicians. I wrote letters to the Age. Still do. And, um, of course, it was ineffective. It was isolated. Uh, but I could just see we needed action at the government level. I, I have watched for so long and, and I can see that the, uh, you know, it's the loudest voice in the room. It's the squeakiest wheel lobbyists who, who get the attention and get the resources and other, Although we're not, we shouldn't be competing with other illness groups. We can compare with them, and uh, we can see that we're just not getting our fair share of government resources. And um, I think it is useful to look at um, other examples like uh, multiple sclerosis (MS), where there are about thirty. 3,000 of them in Australia and uh, and they got, I just looked this up before, 18 million recently from the Medical Research uh, Future Fund. Yeah. yeah, so that was $500 per patient. I mean, you know, this is the stuff we dream of. So I, I think that we are getting better organised all the time, uh, patient groups, patient organisations, uh, we're becoming better at uh, becoming political. So a lot more has been happening in terms of like the parliamentary friendship groups, a lot more has been happening in Senate estimates, lots of government submissions going in. Uh, for us to get, you know, a full mention in the Long COVID report, how good was that compared to 10 years ago? You know, this is great. Uh, so, yes, think, things are changing, not as fast as we'd like, um, but we've just got to keep at it. <laughs> oh, how amazingly encouraging is that to hear? Um, so I've asked this question of many people on our podcast series, uh, but it's a particularly pertinent question for both of you, and that is what would you do if you were Prime Minister for a day? 
Gotta kill Billy Hess. Uh, is that all? Uh, I'll let you answer. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, I guess there's the, the the shopping list of requests that we have, uh, which basically uh, would be the implementation of the 2019 NHMRC report recommendations. It's there, it's sitting on the shelf. A lot of great work went into it. Just I would just implement them, those recommendations. Same with uh, the long COVID, more recent long COVID report, recommendation recommendation eight. Just yep. implement them, get it done, um, non-binding. I, you know, uh, Senator Steele John has just set up an inquiry. He's got an inquiry through into ADHD, which uh is wonderful and it's needed we need the same thing we need the same level of attention we are sick, sicker we are more disabled we are more invisible we need this sort of, we need uh an inquiry uh with with stakeholders and patients that leads to recommendations and leads to real actions and of course, we know that includes updating the guidelines, uh, getting uh, doctors educated right starting at the medical schools right across the country. We need expert clinicians, a, a specialist, so we know where to go to instead. At the right at this moment, I'm juggling six different specialists, and it's it's exhausting. Uh, we need easy access to NDIS, DSP and other government supports. At the moment, it's an uneven uh, system where people like us, where I have an advocate and uh, we have the resources, I was able to get access. If I had to apply for NDIS without my advocate, uh, it would never have happened because I, I would not have the cognitive or the financial resources unfair system, same with DSP. All that needs to be fixed, Bill Shorten. Uh, and I also would organise an, uh, an apology uh, in Parliament, I think we deserve it, for decades of medical and government abuse and neglect. A public apology to us all, because we have all suffered so much neglect and stigma and there is so much trauma and this trauma needs to be acknowledged. And that is what I would do. Wow. <laughs> That's why you guys are such amazing advocates and um, in hearing all those things that you listed, I guess, um, I'm pretty pleased that Emerge Australia is working on all of those fronts. Mm. I can't say we've started work on an apology, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but what a great idea. Um, a statement from the heart might be good too. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Lots of parallels. Just a one yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, um, yes, um, you've uh, hit the nail on the head. 
with everything that you said and and everything that Emerge Australia, of course, is working towards. So, um, and we're just so appreciative of the the work that you do for us when you are able, because it's always brilliant work. So finally, we'd all like to think that the lived experience brings with it wisdom. What have you learned in your journey that could bring hope and light to those people who are living with MECFS? What can we finish this off with on a very hopeful note from you? Um, I guess uh, reaching out to community, and I think a lot of people say this, the MECFS community uh, has been a lifesaver for me. Uh, the moment I discovered Facebook, which was, I have to say, well after everyone else discovered Facebook, um, and I discovered the the online community, uh, what changed my life. And uh, reaching out to to our community for support, there are the Facebook groups have just proliferated. So there's a there's a MECFS Facebook group for every occasion and every need out there. And, you know, people are wonderful. You just ask a question, ask for support, ask, do you just, people just make posts and say, I've had a really shit day, this is what's happened. And there is so much support out there. There really is. Uh, and I think that's a, a great strength that we have. Um that we can at any time get support, get advice on doctors, on treatments, on medications, you know, that, yeah, it's, it's great. Benny and Pete, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we ran a bit over, but your messages are just so important for everyone to hear. So we thank you so much for your willingness to share with us and be so open about your experiences. Your stories are so important uh, and so inspirational and instructive to others looking for hope. So thank you for coming on our podcast series. Thank you, Anne, for the opportunity. Yes, thank you, Anne, and, and thanks to the Emerge team for all the work. Oh, that's a pleasure. So the Emerge Australia Imagine podcast series seeks to speak to people of influence and those whose voices need to be heard. This is a platform where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. If the content of this or other Emerge Australia podcasts has triggered an emotional response for which you need assistance, feel free to contact Lifeline on 131114, their Crisis Support and Suicide Prevention Service. You may also go onto the Emerge Australia website where emergency services are listed. Tune in again for our next interview and soon we will be announcing an entire series of interviews with some of the world's leading clinicians and researchers so please stay tuned and for all the information on the work of Emerge Australia and what we have lined up for you in the coming months, you can subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter uh, by going onto our website on 
www.emerge.org.au. Jenny and Pete, thank you so much and bye for now. Thanks, Anne. Bye-bye. You may say that I'm a dreamer But I'm not the only